We are partway through a series, as has been already said, on common passages we misquote, or we misinterpret, or we have a misunderstanding. Misunderstandings are pretty easy to happen, aren't they? Like little ones happen all the time. Sometimes misunderstandings are, can be quite costly. There's a bank out there called HSBC. It's a British worldwide bank. And in 2009, they had, they had this as their slogan. It was, assume nothing, right? Assume nothing. Well, what they didn't realize is that in some languages, when they translated that, it didn't say assume nothing. It just said simply do nothing, right? <laughs> do nothing. Like, you have money to come to our bank? Just do nothing. Right? And so in 2009, HSBC, they had to go through a $10 million um, rebranding campaign, all because of that mistranslation that they never thought of. Sometimes misunderstandings are costly, but sometimes they're also kind of funny, aren't they? I was reading how in, back when Jimmy Carter was president, he was once in Japan and, you know, as presidents often do, they give speeches, right? And so he's beginning a speech to a bunch of Japanese people, and he has his translator, his interpreter next to him. And you know how you often start off speeches with, you know, like a funny story, some, some way to, to grab people's attention. So Jimmy Carter started off with some little funny story. And then he looked to the translator, and the translator interpreted what he was saying. And then after the interpreter was done, the whole crowd just like erupts in laughter. Like, this is funny. And I don't know if Jimmy Carter thought he was a funny man, but in that moment, I think he knew that he wasn't that funny, right? It just was a little too much laughing. And so the speech goes on, they get to the end. At the end of it all, President Carter, he asks his translator, so what was going on? Why did everyone start laughing extremely? And at first, the interpreter, he didn't want to tell him what was going on because he finally admitted that when Jimmy Carter told off his little story, the little funny story, uh, the interpreter admitted he had no idea what Jimmy Carter was talking about. He had no idea. And so what he said to the crowd in Japanese, he said, President Carter has told a funny story. Everyone must laugh <laughs> right now. <laughs> I was thinking, would it be helpful for you guys if we had someone off to the side with little cue cards, like, <laughs> laugh now, <laughs> right? Misunderstandings, mistranslations, it can take you a lot of different directions. For instance, when it comes to the Bible, I don't know if you've ever been to Rome, but there's a sculpture there Michelangelo carved many years ago, and it's not David, it's another Bible character, it's Moses. And if you've ever looked at that picture or seen that sculpture, you will notice something very peculiar about Moses' head. And I have a picture up here. It looks like he has horns on his head. And it's not just Michelangelo. In fact, there are other artists of this time period that sometimes Moses is depicted with horns on his head. And you may be asking, isn't horns a little strange? Like, why does he have horns on his head? Like, I've read the Bible where Moses is in it, and I don't remember anywhere where it says Moses had horns. Well, here's the thing. The reason Moses has horns on that statue is because of a, a mistranslation or a misunderstanding. You see, when Jerome was translating the Bible into Latin back in the 4th or 5th century, he came to Exodus 34, 
where Moses has been up on the Mount Sinai with God for 40 days, and he's coming down carrying the Ten Commandments. And as he comes down, most of our Bibles say that Moses' face shone like it radiated. It was shining. It had like radiating beams coming from it. That's what most of our Bibles say. But that word in Hebrew was a tricky one to translate. And when Jerome came to it, he didn't really know what to make of this word because in its root, horns is one of the definitions. And so eventually he just used the most literal definition he could come up with and translated saying, instead of Moses coming down the mountain with like shining light on his face, it says he came down with horns on his head. And that's how we have this. That for hundreds of years we have, you know, certain certain artists putting horns on his head. You know, it makes no sense, but hey, the Bible says it. And so I guess we better do it. Misunderstandings. One thing that misunderstandings do, if we're not careful, is they can they can make us miss out what God is trying to actually say to us through the scripture. And so for the last three weeks, we have been looking at scriptures that are commonly mistranslated. Number one, do you remember the first one? It was Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And we talked about how that's not a, that's not a permission to go think that you can do whatever you set your mind to, but rather it's saying that we can basically endure whatever life throws at us and carry on following God and doing what he's called us to do. Last week, Jeremiah 29.11, some of you will remember, I have plans for you, says the Lord, good plans, not to harm you, to give you a hope and a future. And we talked about how that verse was written specifically to a very specific group of people at a very specific time. And that though it is true, it carries true statements about believers, it doesn't really technically apply to us in that particular verse. And today we come to a verse that is not quite as common as the other two. Um, And often I find this verse is used only in a very specific subject, and that's the subject of prayer, specifically group prayer. And it's Matthew 18.20, which simply says these words. It says, For where two or three gather together as my followers... I'm there among them. Or maybe you're more familiar with New King James where it says, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, I'm there in the midst of them. Where do we hear this first talked about? Well, this is, this is where I have heard it many times. Say we call a prayer meeting in the church and maybe it's at nighttime and as time's getting ready for it to start, we realize there's not too many people here. It's a little discouraging. It's a little disappointing. And so, not to be disappointed or discouraged, when prayer starts, maybe the pastor or someone else, we come to this prayer meeting and say, God, we know that there's not many people here tonight, but we thank you that your word says where two or three are gathered together, you are in this place. I have to confess, I have used this verse in that way before. Like, I specifically can think of when I have used this verse, and here's the worst part. I knew the context of this passage And I still used it in the wrong way. So I'm hoping that after I preach this message to myself today, that from now on I will always use this verse in light of its proper context. What is the problem with that interpretation? Well, have you ever thought about it and doesn't it imply something? So if if Jesus is present when there's two or three, does that mean if there's only one, Jesus is not present? Right? 
And I think we can all agree, no, that's, that doesn't make sense. And so then it kind of goes back to the question, well, then what does this verse mean if it doesn't mean that? Context. Context is so important. I think we all know that context is important. Have you ever started a new show midway through season three? Have you? I haven't. I've always started it's episode one, season one. Because you need that backstory. We need, you know, we understand the importance of background and context. I remember as a teenager, um, sometimes at night we would watch a movie together, something, me and my brothers, and we'd say to my dad, Dad, we're watching this movie. Do you want to watch with us? And he would sometimes say, no, I'm going to go do something downstairs. Fine. He goes downstairs. We start the movie. Halfway through the movie, Dad comes back up the stairs, and instead of walking by to do something else, he you know, is hooked on the TV, and he just stands there. And we said, you want to sit down? No, he's not staying. But he stands there nonetheless for, you know, 15 minutes, and he's watching this movie. And then what always ends up happening is he starts talking in the movie. He starts asking us questions because he doesn't understand what's going on. Anyone here like when people talk through movies? No? (laughs) Maybe some of us like doing the talking through the movies. I don't know. (laughs) There's a couple of us, I'm sure. And, you know... I have to confess that me and my brother as teens, we weren't always the most grace-filled with our parents, as maybe you know what that's like. Um, And so we'd be like, no, Dad. If you wanted to watch the movie, you should have started at the beginning. And we would be very short with Dad, unfortunately, because it's no fun trying to stop the movie and kind of catch him up to speed because he didn't Watch it from the beginning. Context is important. And we talked about this word, this phrase. It comes up again and again. And I'm hoping today, when we finish this series, that this phrase will be embedded in your minds. Context is everything. So I'm proposing today, why don't we take this, this theory, context is everything, and why don't we apply it to this verse, Matthew 18, 20. So I'm gonna begin at the beginning of the passage, verse 15. And as I read it, I want you to be thinking about what is Jesus talking about here? Like, what is going on? What's the main point? Verse 15. If another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you have won that person back. But if you are unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back again so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. If the person still refuses to listen... Take your case to the church, then if he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. I tell you the truth. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven, and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. I also tell you this, if two of you agree here on earth concerning anything you ask, my Father in heaven will do it for you. And here's our verse. For where two or three gather together as my followers, I am there among them. Do you notice this verse, these pa- this passage didn't talk a whole lot about prayer meetings? I mean, there's prayer mentioned, but not a whole lot, right? It's talking a lot about something else. What is that thing? Well, Jesus is talking about this point, resolving conflict between believers, between fellow Christians, maybe people in the same church. That is the context of this passage today. Now, you may be wondering, what's, what is he talking about? Conflict between believers? That never happens. It's all kumbaya here, right? <laughs> I'm speaking a little facetious and sarcastic in case you didn't get it. But uh, 
Yes, even God's people experience conflict from time to time. Maybe you've experienced it firsthand. And you know, one of the the places where I've seen where conflict has really shown itself is the number of denominations we have in the world. You know, there's a whole lot of them. And often, they've been started because of some form of conflict between different parties. I think of some for good reasons, maybe, some for maybe not so good reasons. I think of um, maybe one of the not so good reasons was you know, King Henry VIII wanted to divorce his wife in the 1500s and he went to the Pope and the Pope said no and so he said, fine, I'll just start my own church. I'll start my own denomination. I know there's more to the story than that, but it often boils down to King Henry wanted a divorce and the Pope said no. So he started his own denomination. Not the most holy of motivations to start a new denomination, but hey, that's the way it went. Um, most of you won't know this, but... Um, the history of the Wesleyan Church in Atlantic Canada started because five ministers in New Brunswick years ago in the 1880s got kicked out of the denomination they were in. They got expelled because of a difference of belief they had. And I'm assuming that those five ministers, they had strong, sincere beliefs on what God was teaching through his word. And I'm also pretty sure that those leaders in the denomination They had their own convictions and beliefs, and they were all sincere. But those five ministers were kicked out of their Baptist denomination that they were a part of. And so the question is for those five guys, what do we do now? We've been kicked out of our churches. We've been kicked out of our denomination. What do we do? And so they decided they're going to start something new. And that grew, and through mergers and such, that is the starting point of the Wesleyan Church in Atlantic Canada, It goes back to conflict happening. And conflict goes way back before the 1800s and the 1500s. I read the book of Acts where it says Paul and Barnabas, two apostles, they had a disagreement about an issue and it says, Luke writes, like sharp words were spoken and they parted ways. Like, you know, he's saying in a nice way, that didn't go over well. (laughs) And they parted ways for a time. Conflict is all through. You know, there's a verse that's not in the Bible, but I'm thinking it, it's, it's interesting. It's like, where two or three are gathered together, so are many opinions, right? <laughs> and that's just the way it is. To be human, there is differences of opinion. Jesus is telling us today, it's implied here through this passage I've read, one very important matter, which is this. Don't avoid difficult conversations. I don't know about you, but a lot of us, we don't like conflict. You know, we avoid it like the plague. Uh, We skirt around it and pretend it's not there, but oftentimes when we avoid conflict and those difficult conversations, often the issue never goes away, right? The problem just doesn't magically disappear. Often, it's still there, and maybe slowly it festers and festers and builds and it causes tension, and that was never Jesus' plan for his church. Jesus prayed in, in John 17, he said, Lord, I pray that your church will be one as me and you are one. Unity was what he wanted. In another place, John 13, Jesus says, your love for one another will prove to the world 
that you are my disciples. Like, the way you relate to one another is gonna be so different that people are gonna look and say, what is this? Why do you guys act this way and love each other? It's because of Jesus. We are supposed to be different. Jesus knew that conflict would be a part of life, just like a family. Like, I don't know if you've ever lived with a few people in one, under one roof. It doesn't matter how much you love them. At times, there's conflict. It's just the way it is, right? And so Jesus gives us this passage, this three-step process to deal with conflict in a healthy way. And he says, first step is this, talk to them first. If someone has offended you or hurt you, talk to them first. Go privately. Verse 15 says, if another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you have won that person back. The key here is not to win arguments or win points, but it's to win the person over. You know, you can, you can win arguments, but lose the relationship. And rarely is ever that worth it, to lose the relationship. I have learned one thing. I remember some marriage advice. I don't know if I read it somewhere. But they basically said that, and it works for any kind of relationship. They said, if someone offends you, the other party, instead of going to them and saying, you did this, this, and that, and you're guilty, I'm innocent, repent now. They say, you know, that doesn't work very well, right? <laughs> Do you ever find, you know, when you, you come very accusative towards people, they don't respond well? And they said, instead of saying, you did this, instead say something like, when this happened, it made me feel this way. When you did this, it, this is how I took it and it hurt me. And I tell you, the, the approach is humility and it's totally different. And it reminds me of Proverbs 15.1 which says, A gentle answer deflects anger, but harsh words make tempers flare. Here's the thing. Sometimes when people offend us, and I'm sure maybe I've offended some of you in the past, but there's often times when the person that offended you has no idea they offended you. They just are clueless. You know, I'm walking around thinking everyone loves me and he, little do I know that I said something that, you know, put someone off. And sometimes the key to just resolving conflict is just going to them privately and saying, hey, when you did this, this is how it made me feel. And oftentimes, it's just that simple and p the person will say, oh my goodness, I had no idea that this is what happened. I'm, I'm so sorry I did this. It was not intended. Talk to them first. Humility is what is needed and use as few people as possible in private. You know, I found, have you found this, that the more people you involve in your problems, the bigger the problem becomes and the more people that get upset and then if you do try to resolve it, the more cleanup you have to do in order to resolve the thing. The best way to start is to start right at the beginning of just one-on-one -on -one Talk to them first. And, but sometimes that doesn't work. And so Jesus says, then go to the next stage. Bring one or two others along. Verse 16. If you are unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back again so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. That word, two or three witnesses, is a key phrase here. It's all throughout the Bible. It goes back to Deuteronomy 19.15 where it says, but let every word be established by the mouth of two or three witnesses. Why are witnesses so important? Well, here's the thing. In ancient days, 
You didn't have much for evidence if you ever had to go to court. Like, they didn't have video footage. You know of the guy breaking into the store and you get him there on camera? They didn't have that. Uh, you know when someone slanders and says a whole lot of mean things, you take screenshots of what they say on Facebook or text messages they've sent you? They didn't have that. They didn't have any of those things. But they had people as witnesses. That's why it was so important. And he's saying, I want you to go back to them with a couple other people so that they can listen and hear what is said. Because have you ever had those conversations where you leave a conversation thinking one thing was decided and later you find out the other person, when they left the conversation, they thought something completely different was decided. It's good to have people as witnesses. If you ever have to go and bring a couple people with you. The goal is here not to bring a couple goons, right? To, to say, you know, now it's three against one. What are you going to do now, right? That's not the point here. The point is to restore people. And you need special people. If you're going to involve people in some conflict, you need special people. They've got to be mature believers that are more concerned about unity and truth than they are about taking sides. Maybe more concerned about peacemaking than anything else. Maybe people that are even willing to say, hey, you didn't see this about yourself in this situation. You have some fault here too. And being willing to be humble enough to accept it. Take those people with you. People that can pray for you. But sometimes even that doesn't work. And so he takes us to the third step. And that is this. Sometimes you have to take matters to the church the greater body, the assembly of believers. He says in verse 17, if a person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. Then if he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. Well, that sounds a little bit strong to my modern day thinking and feelings, right? It seems a bit strong, but we have to remember that in this culture at that time, this would have been completely normal. You know, in the synagogues, this would have been a normal thing. Often synagogue leaders, like you were also community leaders as well, and sometimes people would be brought to the leaders where they had to decide what to do. What is the disciplinary action required? It wasn't rare for them, but it's rare for us now. Like, it's pretty rare for a church to actually provide some sort of discipline to a church member. Why? Let's be honest. Why, is it, why does that not happen? Well, because many of us are not good at receiving correction from people, right? And so if a church decides that something's wrong and you need to do something, and if you don't want to do it, what do you do? You just pack up and say, I'm going to the church down the road, right? I'm not going to listen to you guys. And they end up going to the church down the road. Nothing's ever resolved. And often their problems kind of go with them because nothing was ever fixed or dealt with. And I really think we are at a loss as a people when we don't allow people that love Jesus to speak truth into us at times when we really need it. The key, the key here is to speak the truth in love. Speak truth in love. You know, because of our personalities, we often go one of, which, of two ways. Some of us are really good at loving people and affirming them, but maybe not so good at confronting them with truth. And then others of us, we really like being truth tellers, but it doesn't come with a lot of love. And the late Tim Keller says this about that statement. He says, love without truth is sentimentality. 
It supports and affirms us, but keeps us in denial about our flaws. Truth without love, though, is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we cannot really hear it. Jesus spoke truth in love, and he calls us to do the same. I read this this statement, which I, I hopefully will never forget, and it says this, that humility must come before honesty. Humility must come before honesty. That is the goal. If you ever have to go to someone and ask that they repent or turn from their ways, it must start with humility. And then so Jesus tells this three-step process of resolving conflict. And then he finishes up with a few verses of encouragement to the leaders because he knows that if you're going to wade into conflict, it's never fun. I don't think it's ever fun right? It's never enjoyable to deal with conflict, no matter how holy or no matter how black and white the situation is. And so he gives us encouragement to those church leaders. He says, verse 18, I tell you the truth, whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven. Whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. I tell you this, if two of you here on earth agree concerning anything you ask, my Father in heaven will do it. For where two or three gather together as my followers, I am there among them. What is he saying? He's saying that as you as a church and as leaders come together prayerfully to try to discern what's the best way to to resolve this conflict, as you go with fear and trembling, know this, that whatever the church decides has heaven's backing, essentially. It's saying what you ratify on earth, it will be ratified in heaven. And then Jesus even says, When you are in those conversations, those difficult, challenging conversations, it's okay, remember this, I will be with you through it. I'm wondering today if if any of us in this room have have been avoiding some difficult conversations maybe we need to have in our lives. Is there any conflict with someone in your life right now? Maybe they are a believer and maybe we've been avoiding it. Maybe today, These words are reminding us where Jesus is saying, obey me, follow this three-step process and then leave the results to me. Is there anyone where we have been avoiding them? Maybe they have hurt us and caused us pain and we've never resolved the matter. We've never taken our step into trying to bring some reconciliation and healing Don't avoid the difficult conversation. So back to this verse today, verse 1820. Is this verse saying that, is it talking about prayer meetings and God being there? Well, not necessarily, though prayer is involved. Is it saying that God is only present when two or three of us are gathered together? Well, no, not necessarily. But it's saying that as we deal with difficult conversations, resolving conflict, If we do it God's way, he will be with us. He will be with us. Is God with us when two or three gather together to pray? Yes, he is. But is he also with us when we're praying alone by ourselves in our room? Yes, he is. Is he he with us when we're with thousands of other believers in a big stadium? Yes, he is. Let's not avoid those difficult conversations. Maybe the Lord is speaking specifically to you about something that you've maybe been trying to shove off to the side 
but he wants you to trust him on this one to try to bring reconciliation, to bring some resolution to this issue. Let's not avoid difficult conversations. And as we do study scripture in general, let's remember that context is everything today. Let's pray this morning. Father, we, I just pray for those in this place that there is some existing conflict going on right now and conflict's never easy. Often, we hate conflict. We run from it. Conflict is, it's hard. You never know what's going to happen. It could blow up in your face if you try to approach someone. And I'm just praying today, God, if there is anyone that you want to take that step of going to talk to that person first, would you be preparing the way? Would you be making it clear? Because I know that maybe not every situation you should go and stir things up again. I pray for discernment this morning. You want unity in your church, Lord, and so we pray. I pray for unity, that your church would be united in this day. I pray that our church at New Hope would be united together as one. Of course, we're going to have differences of opinion, but may we work through them in a healthy way. Father, we just are so thankful that Your promise is true in that verse that you are present with us, even in difficulty, even as we deal with hard situations in life. May we just remind ourselves and be more aware of your presence. Would you give us the strength and power to press on, to do it your way and not the world's way? We thank you in all of this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.